Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Well, keeping me company here until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel, we've got Daniel Moylan, who's the former advisor to Boris Johnson and now a Conservative life peer in the House of Lords. Frank Ferretti, who's an author and academic, and Nabila Ramdani, who's a journalist and broadcaster. I have to say as well, you three, you are one of my favourite panels. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank I, don't you. Say, I don't say that every day. Uh, <laughs> not, not, you know, just in case any other panellists are watching. I like you all, uh, but sometimes I have a special one. This is one of my special ones. And you know the drill on Jubes and Co by now. It's not just about us here and our thoughts. It's about you as well at home and yours. What's on your mind tonight? What do you think about some of the stories that we'll be discussing? You can get in touch with me on email, gbviews at gbnews.uk, or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Got to say, lots of you uh, already getting in contact uh, about lots of the stories that we'll be discussing tonight. We've got a pack show. We'll be talking about Ukraine uh, and the UN. We'll be talking uh, about uh, offshore processing of migrants. Uh, lots more as well. Channel 4, are you interested in that? I've got to say one of my panellists, I won't tell you which one, says that he's not interested in this story. What? Are you? Do you think it's a big deal? We'll be getting into that and more in just a second. By the way, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our YouTube page. Uh, you might be watching live there already. Good evening if you are. We're on radio, DAB+. We've got a podcast and we're all over social media. So good evening to you uh, wherever you are. Tell me, by the way, get in touch with me. Let me know where you're watching tonight or listening and how. Uh, always fascinated as to where you guys are. Our top story is straight into that. Then the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, has addressed the United Nations this afternoon. Uh, where he said that the horrific scenes in Butcher, of course, we're familiar with these now. Uh, we've seen corpses, haven't we, all over the streets. He's saying that these scenes have been repeated in other parts of the country as well. Russia has, of course, denied any war crimes and is set to defend itself at the council, where obviously it holds veto powers. Mr Zelensky has asked the UN to remove Russia as a member so that it can't block decisions about its own aggression and its own war. Let's have a listen. Uh, the massacre in our city of Bucha is only one. Many examples of what the occupiers have been doing on our land for the past 41 days. And there are many more. Well, I go, Frank Ferretti, what do you think to that? Well, I think that the United Nations has always been a bit of a talking shop where the delegates go there to perform uh, and to gain a bit of credibility. Uh, and, and basically promote their propaganda. But it, when it comes to action, uh, the United Nations has got a very uh, feeble track record. And it seems to me that the idea that somehow Russia can be removed when you have countries like China, another uh, sort of important member of the United Nations, plus India, backing Russia, we have a situation where uh, 40, the countries representing 40% of the world's population are behind Russia rather than by, behind the Ukraine. I think under those circumstances, that's not going to be a, a venue that's going to do very much to support Ukraine. And it seems to me that at the end of the day, a, the solution, the international solution, lies in brave countries getting together, acting in accordance with each other, coordinating their action, stepping up the sanctions. You know, we have to get Germany to step up a little bit because Germany has been a little bit dishonest. 
in the way that it's kind of carried on. Dishonest how? It's been carrying over that its economic relations with, with Russia, pay, paying a lot of rubles to Russia for energy sources. Uh, and I now hear that it's even the case that it's continuing to import stuff from Russia as well. So we do need to step up and not just pretend to be supporting Ukraine. And that needs to take place amongst nations coordinating their action rather than imagining that the United Nations is going to do very much anytime soon. Uh, Daniel, do you agree with that? Well, I think the United Nations is important in one respect here, and that is that in international law, there are only two reasons, basically, you can go to war with another country. One is if they're about to attack you or they have attacked you. And the other is if it's approved by the Security Council of the United Nations that action be taken under Chapter 7 of the Charter of the United Nations. And when you go back to Tony Blair in Iraq and all, and all these things, they've always tried to get themselves that legal cover and say, oh, we had the approval of the Security Council and so on, even if it was a bit bogus and, well, totally bogus and unconvincing in Blair. Yeah, a lot of my viewers always get in touch about Tony Blair and say, well, it should be him, he should have been yeah. um, up in the head. But, but, but Russia hasn't even pretended, they haven't even pretended that they have a legal basis for this war. They haven't seriously claimed that Ukraine was about to attack them or had attacked them. And they've never, ever sought the approval of the Security Council for their, for their actions. So I think one, the one thing that's important about the United Nations in all of this is that it's that dog that didn't bark. It's the fact that Russia has never even sought the legal approval of the United Nations for invading another independent country. And that, I think, condemns them right from the beginning. Whatever their actions in Ukraine, they'd be in the wrong from day one just for crossing the border and invading that country that have no lawful basis for doing it. Apart from that, I tend to agree with Frank. I don't expect the United Nations to be, in any meaningful sense, um, a, 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 a mechanism for resolving these issues. It might provide a forum for negotiation if they come to that at some stage. But beyond that, I don't see the United Nations playing an important part. The important part has to be played by Western nations uh, tightening sanctions and supplying Ukraine with the armaments they need in order to defend themselves. Nebula? Mm -hmm. Well, as predicted, uh, Zelensky very much focused on war crimes during his address at the UN Security Council. And this is just, you know, butchering, the butchering of um, civilians by Russian forces is just a kind of atrocity that will help efforts by other countries to, to help uh, Ukraine. And, for example, France's anti-terrorism uh, prosecutor has announced today that three war crime probes has just been opened into uh, events uh, in the Ukraine. France and Germany have also uh, expelled selected Russian diplomats, and France has uh, summoned uh, its uh, Russian ambassador uh, in, in Paris to explain himself. And it's very clear that the UN will support uh, the uh, Ukraine and its allies in, in carrying out similar efforts. But it also seems very clear that direct military op uh, action is very much not an option. And therefore, any kind do you think, of... But do you think it should ever be considered as an option? Because there'll be people, probably even as well people watching this at home, that say, actually... There should now be boots on the ground. Uh, lots of people would have seen what happened uh, or was reported to have happened in Bukha over the weekend. They say, right, that's it. That's my red line now. Uh, military action, boots on the ground should be happening. I, I wouldn't think that it's the appropriate scenario. I think it will just escalate the conflict and direct uh, action will certainly um, uh, allow Putin to, um, you know, resort to nuclear um, to the nuclear option. But I mean, he's just you, a kind of. If you continually worry about the nuclear option, 
then what we're saying is that their blackmail, their nuclear blackmail, will always paralyze us because we're always worried about escalating the action. But who's doing the escalation? It's Russia that's been doing the escalation in the Ukraine. So at I some point, we need to say that beyond this red line, you know, we will not tolerate the situation to continue. And it's got to be done realistically. You know, it's got to be done in a, in a hard-headed kind of a way. But what I'm really worried about is that actually the focus on war crimes distracts from the real fighting that is going on. And it becomes much more susceptible to propaganda war and to uh, issues to do that are, that are secondary because the real issue at stake is the sovereignty of Ukraine and the real issue at stake is the war. And we, you know, we don't talk very much about what's going on in relation to the war, except in relation to the uh, human interest stories that are coming out of the Ukraine. And, and I think uh, uh, Zelensky is being very much of a diplomat in all this. You can uh, see that he doesn't want to upset his many allies, uh, but you can also see the massive pressure he's under. It's written all over his face, even though he's trying to put the bravest face uh, possible uh, on. But I always think he looks remarkably well. I think he looks very frustrated <laughs> about the lack of some support from some countries, and he would love to see a lot more uh, support uh, in terms of armaments, in terms of also more practical uh, support and hardware, military hardware, pouring into the Ukraine. And... I think one of his greatest fear, uh, fears, to be honest, is his safety. We have seen that a lot of uh, Russians' own military leaders have been uh, killed, and there's no doubt that they will be targeting uh, Zelensky. And, um, Daniel, do you think there should ever be um, a situation where, you know, military boots on the ground are, I think, is what Frank's uh, saying, and, and by the way, I, I don't think there should be a situation where there should be boots on the ground, but many people do, many people are saying that the West has been weak against uh, a bullying Putin. The West needs to stand up to the bullies and not just keep cowering behind this excuse of a nuclear weapon. Well, there are two answers. The first answer is in principle, yes. And the second answer is in practical terms, the risk of nuclear um, yes, escalation. what? You think, yes, there should be military... Yeah, presence? in principle, yes. If the Ukrainians now invited us to uh, participate militarily um, in Ukraine, if this was any other country and you weren't, it wasn't Russia on the other side we'd probably have gone there to try and actually help sort things out. Um, so and so, yes, so in principle, but the fact that there is a nuclear risk and a nuclear price tag potentially attached to this is the other answer, and that is the... the but I think there's still scope, potentially, for some sort of enclave, some sort of limited intervention. So, for example, uh, Lviv in the West, you know, which has been relatively peaceful, it's had some strikes from its oil depots, but relatively peaceful... You know, if we had some deal where we carved out an enclave there that was safe for Ukrainians, that we protected them who were in the West, I'm not suggesting that that's the solution because I don't know, I'm not a strategist. But if it was limited and understood by the Russians to be limited, then I think we could consider doing something that might not escalate to nuclear war. So there might be a grey answer, a grey area between my two answers, but which are a, yes a, and no. A long way, long way to go before we could get to nuclear war. You have to remember that... Putin, although it's depicted as this crazy individual, does not want to destroy Russia. He knows that if there was a nuclear confrontation, Russia too would be destroyed. So I, I think that the nuclear option has been elevated into this kind of transcendental threat and danger. We're not there yet. We are a long, long, long way from there. And I think that you know, at the, <coughs> the next step really is to give the Ukrainians really good arms to, to allow them to protect their air. Which is what we're doing. Yeah, but should that a little bit more systematically, and I think Daniel's point 
about establishing a, an enclave in the west of Ukraine or somewhere, you know, somewhere strategic in the Ukraine is really, really vitally important just to demonstrate to the Ukrainians that we're not just talking, you know, but not all talk, but we're also action, something like that. But I don't think anyone can accuse us. Well, I have to say, I say I don't think anyone can, actually. I do see people criticising the UK all the time for not doing enough. And I think that is actually quite unfair because I think that uh, the UK well, are leading the way in I lots would of take ways no notice money of and those people. Yeah. Listen to what um, Zelensky is saying about the UK yeah, and other countries. What I'm really interested, though, is what Klitschko said, the mayor of Kiev, yeah. which is, it, it's one thing to talk about the UK, but when you talk about Europe in general you're not getting the sort of level of sanctions and the commitment to the level of sanctions. Every time the Europeans talk, some European countries, talk about sanctions, Germany in particular, it's always, well, we'll see if we can do a bit more. There's an element of reluctance. They're almost feeding Putin's sense that he can get away with this just through yeah. their tone, let alone through their actions. Yeah. And that does need to change. And Klitschko's right, it is blood money. It is, it is blood money that, that was being paid over to Russia. Well, I would just say that I wouldn't call um, Putin's bluff over the nuclear option, to be honest. And that's why I think that diplomatic initiatives and indeed resupplying Ukraine and any more sanctions are becoming increasingly crucial. And that's, you know, uh, it's inevitable that we should put more sanctions on Russia. And I think Liz Trust will be advocating as much because economics plays such an important yeah, part. Yes, she is already, yeah. And, and yeah. What, I, not, I don't want to call his bluff on the nuclear. Just to be clear, I, I would have I, I made it clear, I don't think we should risk that. But there are things I think we can do, which if the Russians understood they were limited and specific, that go beyond sanctions and the supply of weapons. But like, that what would though, not you necessarily, mean, I've given one mean, example. I think a no-fly zone across the whole of the Ukraine probably goes too far because that's direct yeah. engagement with the Russian... But, 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 but if you had troops on the ground in, 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 uh, in the West, in Lviv, and you were effectively saying to the, to the Russians, you know, you, take the, you, you dare bomb us now, because that, of course, is one of the reasons for having forward troops, is to reasons we put troops in, into um, Eastern Europe, is, of course, to, to create a tripwire for the Russians. If you push that tripwire a bit further forward and the Russians understand what you're doing, I don't think you're necessarily calling the nuclear bluff. So I agree with Nabila. To some extent, I don't want to take unnecessary and, you know, outrageous risks. But I think there is potentially a grey area where. But we Putin had said that he will never use nuclear weapons unless the existence of Russia itself was threatened. And I think he's made it very, very clear that his initial bluffing earlier on was a step too far. I, I do think that we need a reality check in relation to this, and uh, not simply reduce all of our options just because they have nuclear weapons. I think if you, do, if you do that, then we are fighting with one hand, one arm behind our back, and that's not an effective way of going I forward. I think that damaging profoundly and severely the Russian economy might generate a feeling in Russia that the mood towards, you know, the uh, aggression of the Ukraine is wrong, and, and therefore well, people might... Well, you say that, you say that, and actually, again, I caveat what I'm about to say, because I've got to say, in this day and age, it's become increasingly difficult to even know what to believe half the time, but depending on what and who you do believe, apparently Putin's uh, approval rating is rocketing in Russia as we speak. What do you make to that? Uh, let me know your thoughts. We're going to take a quick break there. Let me know your thoughts on some of the things you've just been hearing from the panel. Um, do you think there should ever be a situation where boots on the ground 
uh, is a thing, whether it's just in a small part of Ukraine, as we've just been hearing, or broader. Uh, I certainly don't, but I'm interested in your thoughts. GBviews at gbnews.uk. Tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews when we come back from the break. I want to talk to you about Channel 4. Should it be privatised, yes or no? Why are the government talking about this? Uh, and why now? We'll have that and more after the break. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubry. A quick reminder as to who's keeping me company in the studio tonight. Daniel Moylan, who's the former advisor to Boris Johnson and now a Tory life peer in the House of Lords. Frank Ferretti, the author and academic, and Nabila Ramdani, journalist and broadcaster. Lots of you guys have been getting in contact. Uh, Carol says, yes, the UN uh, Security Council is not fit for purpose, especially now. She's saying it's ridiculous that one member state can veto. And she says it'll be pretty obvious that Russia would veto the request to even have them removed from the UN. But Della says, Michelle, no, they shouldn't kick Russia out of the UN or future diplomacy, uh, she says, would be impossible. Mac on the email says at no point should the Western world put boots on the ground. It is their war, not ours. Jackie says, well, while we're continuing sending arms to Ukraine, we are simply helping to escalate the conflict, causing more loss of life and the destruction of Ukraine. Jackie goes on to ask a good point as well. Uh, she's saying, where is the West leadership uh, when it comes to trying to stop the conflict? I've got to say, Jackie, I've found that quite interesting myself. Um, where are the prominent people pushing for more peace talks? When will we see Zelensky and Putin sit down together? Do you think enough is being done to try and foster peace and an end to this situation? Uh, some people uh, have been in contact with suspicions that some people would like this war to be extended for as long as possible. Hmm, what do you think to that? Let's move on, shall we? Channel 4, uh, let's cut to the chase. Do you think it should be privatised or not? The Culture Secretary Nadine Doris has tweeted that the government ownership is holding Channel 4 back. She reckons that selling it to a private owner would give it the tools and freedom to flourish and thrive as a public service broadcaster. Hmm, what do we think to this? Daniel Moylan. Well, I think this is a tremendous practical political joke by the government because what it's done is it has fired up in fury all of the people who want to keep Channel 4 in state ownership. But the key thing about it is there are only about 2,000 of them in the whole country, and most of them live in Islington. The vast majority of people in this country, if you stop them in the street, if you went to a pub, they wouldn't be able to tell you who owns Channel 4 today. If you ask them, do you watch it, they'd say no. Um, and nobody is actually interested in this. This is a fantastic non-story, but it'll keep all the lefty on steroids um, tweeting crazed things about fascism in our day, um, for, for weeks and months. Um, it doesn't matter whether they privatise it or not. They've totally distracted the left and driven them off into a furious frenzy for weeks to come, and that's where they belong. That's where they belong. Keep them over there, <laughs> arguing about something that simply does not matter to the vast majority of this pe the people in this country. Well, it matters to a few people. Let me just read out um, a couple of tweets from some prominent people, shall I? I think you're making my point for me. Um, well, yeah, because and I'm going to bring you in, Frank, on this, by the way, because I found this quite fascinating, the suggestion that some people are saying. So Kirsty Allsop, for example, um, TV presenter, she's saying this is a load of utter twaddle. No true Conservative would sell Channel 4. Lady T, obviously, meaning Thatcher, would be spinning in her grave. It was set up to foster 
the British film and TV industry and it has done that job admirably. Mm. Any Tory MP that votes for this is a traitor to their party and country, bit extreme. Uh, Alistair Campbell is saying that this uh, Channel 4 move is right out of the Orban playbook and time to make it blatant. Part of the purpose is to wind up the Liberals. Is this out of the Orban playbook? Because for just a moment, sorry, yeah. Alistair Campbell, what Orban is accused of doing is nationalising private broadcasters and bring them under government control. This is the absolute reverse. How can Alistair, how can this nutcase actually say things like that? <laughs> you know, it's completely a, a contrary to the it's fact. It's because Orban well, Frank, has become... you are Hungarian, yeah. part Hungarian, am I right? I'm 100% Hungarian. Oh, I thought you was part Hungarian, no. part Canadian. Am I making I, I grew up? up in Canada, but 100% Hungarian. Oh, right, well, there you go, because I found this quite interesting. A few people have been saying, oh, yeah, this is about dictators. This is what dictators do. And I'm sitting there thinking, to, to Daniel's point, this is the opposite of what dictators do. Dictators surely try and keep a hold of and, and control media. They don't sell it off to private people. Your thoughts? But, I mean, uh, the, the, the same point is made about Hungary because what Orban and, 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 and the government said was we're not going to subsidise uh, sort of clapped-out left-wing newspapers that are very boring and have a very small leader, uh, readership. In, in, in the old days, they were subsidised. And they basically said, you know, go your own way see if you can make it on your own. And more or less, you know, th that attitude, I think, makes sense. Uh, I think there is a, a need for one public sector television and, and radio channel, but we don't need any more than that. I think Channel 4 is not exactly a national treasure. It's not something that people feel very passionate about. I think Daniel's absolutely right about it. And I think there is a case for uh, letting it find its own way. And I, th I think it probably will do a pretty good job. I do think that there is a, an issue here, which is it seems that the government has got a lot of spare time on its hand in order to make this into an issue at this particular time when there are so many pressing matters. But that's a, a, another issue entirely. But I do think that what is very interesting is the reaction to it from people like Campbell, who basically see any change to the media landscape, any, any attempt to somehow distance the government from owning uh, various uh, institutions, as a threat to their very existence. And I think the idea that that's a, an act of a dictator is really a, a, a fantasy, something that comes out of a Walt Disney cartoon rather than from an objective political analysis. Nabila? Well, I personally think that there should be space in the vast uh, broadcast sector for programs that are not commercially viable. And I think that Channel 4 has fulfilled that role pretty admirably over the years. And I don't live in Islington. Uh, remember that it was also a creation of the Thatcher years. And in the end, it was all about variety. And I think that's a, a pretty good thing, uh, ultimately. There is certainly, as we know, opposition to uh, privatisation of the channel, even coming from some Tories. But I think this is clearly a policy to keep the right wing of the party ha happy. Why? Can I, make... I think many believe that Channel 4 News needs sorting out because of its allegedly uh, anti-Brexit and left-wing well, uh, um, uh, I mean, news yeah. coverage and revenge is probably a strong word, but I think it may well be that but the Frank's Conservatives are not sorting out natural enemies. Frank's saying it's not allegedly left. It is left. What would you well, say to that? But also anti-Brexit. I mean, it, it, it's very one-sided and tendentious. But that's not, you know, I mean, I don't mind TV channels being one-sided and tendentious. What I do mind is, is when that kind of culture, uh, kind of self, uh, that, that kind of self-important culture, which is really anti-people in the, in the British context, is, is, is resourced through, through the government. And I, I would much rather that they made their own way. 
And I'm a big believer in allowing films to be subsidized, you know, good, you know, good difficult films to be made, but that can be done in a variety of different ways. It doesn't need to be done by Channel 4. That can be done through private donations. It can be done through uh, all kinds of, like, like, it, like it's done in the United States and elsewhere. Could I make I a point on that? I think the government is um, presenting the plans in the language of liberal economics. Uh, essentially, uh, they want Channel 4. They say that Channel 4 needs freedom from the government so as to compete with companies like Netflix and Amazon. And you have voices like Jeremy Hunt, for example, who are also saying that Britain needs uh, a public sector rival to the BBC. Uh, and I would, I would tend to agree with that. I think, can I make a commercial point? The Kirsty Allsop point about Channel 4 and commissioning movies has a lot of validity to it. Um, and Channel 4 in its early days was, was really groundbreaking in commissioning new films. But that was, this is the point, that was before the days of Netflix and Amazon. Mm. And Channel 4 is a, is a minnow in those waters. And so if you really want creativity in terms of commissioning a new work, Channel 4 really has to think about a new model and the private sector might be the right place for it. This is quite apart from any question of um, uh, the politics of the news and things like that. But they don't want to. They want to stick in their little rut and carry on being very happy where they are. Understand that. People don't like change. But I don't think they've got a future as a major commissioner of work if they are up against Amazon and Netflix now. Um, that, that's just not where these people are. They're far too small. Which yeah, but as I say, nobody cares. Nobody actually cares. Well, if you look at and we're program. even discussing it here. We're just encouraging the idea <laughs> well, Fred, that this uh, is an important question. You. Freddie agrees with you. I think yeah. he's saying that no one cares. Lots of you are saying that you don't watch it. Uh, some of you, Paul, is emailing in saying, is this the start? Um, is it going to be the BBC that's going to be privatised next? Uh, Hmm, I've got to say, I don't really think a, a, a government has much business, really, running media outlets. I really don't. You've got the BBC, um, but then the flip side, people are writing in saying, what about the independent production companies that will probably go out of business if the Channel 4 uh, doesn't actually uh, exist? But I don't know. Is there anything wrong with uh, competitive commercial landscapes? If you're a good uh, independent production company creating good content, uh, surely you can still sell that, or am I missing the point? Let me know uh, your thoughts. Lots of you, uh, if you do watch it, by the way, lots of you messaging in about Naked Attraction. I've got to be honest, I've never, <laughs> I've never even seen Naked Attraction. Is it people getting naked on telly? Maybe we're not allowed to get naked on telly. Well, I don't it's know. a mixture of left-wing news, good documentaries, and soft porn. That's what yeah. Channel Four is. Soft porn. Well, you know, sort of, um, sort of porn in bed, beachside <laughs> sort of. Um, yeah. I've never watched it either. It's got a lot of reality TV programs that are not particularly you yeah. know, sort of fascinating, and not actually related to reality as anybody lives no. it. No. I mean, it's all in you know luxury so resorts on beach sides where yeah. we never go. Well, you seem to know quite a lot about Channel Four. Yeah, I've seen little bits. I've read important academic. Yeah. I've read and, important uh, academic studies of some of these. Yeah, I'm going to watch it's, it. It's I the only, only TV channel that has encouraged people to masturbate. And actually, oh, in the midst of organizing a TV program, I, telling people that this is the way you do it, as if somehow the, the world needs that kind of instruction. From oh, well, uh, when we start getting to that 
uh, point. I think it's time for me to take a break, I reckon. Um, oh, no, I'm not going to take a break. I'm going to talk about... I'm gonna, you know, I nearly made a hilarious joke then. Um, I, I nearly made a hilarious segue from my last uh, comment from Frank into my next topic. And because it's tea time, I stopped myself. Everyone will uh, be pleased to know. Uh, the government's watchdog, the Equality and Human Rights Commission, says that trans women can be legally excluded from some single-sex spaces, including toilets. Transgender women can be legally, ex legitimately excluded from single-sex services if the reasons are justifiable and proportionate, uh, the government's uh, qualities watchdog has said. Nabila, to me, that just sounds like basic common sense. Yes, it does. And it's, I have to say it's one of those subjects as well, which I think requires a huge amount of thoughts and indeed sensitivity and, uh, and those base place to deal with those issues are those directly involved. And, and I think the government's equalities watchdog deals with these issues day in, day out. And so I would be inclined to respect its views on uh, and, uh, that transgender people can indeed be excluded from uh, single sex services if the reasons are, as they put it, justifiable and indeed proportionate. Now, the key key expression here is, of course, justifiable and proportionate. And there is no reason to, uh, you know, why such uh, issues as privacy or indeed decency and the right to prevent trauma, frankly, cannot be adjudicated on by those with expertise. But I think that increasingly the debate, in my view, should be moving towards the need for a whole new um, category for transgender people so they can have their own space, whether it's in sports tournaments or facilities such as hospitals, housing shelters, sports clubs, uh, retailers and the like, so that everybody can feel comfortable and indeed included. Um, see, I've got to say, Nabila, to me, you've just picked up on the thing that is the answer to this in my mind, which I cannot grasp why it's not been made so simple, because one of the challenges from where I'm sitting, and I'm sure many people will be quick to tell me that I'm wrong, but to me, lots of this challenge, lots of this discomfort, lot of, lots of this kind of awkwardness around this, is be it stems from this desire, and I don't even know where it's coming from, to expand a defined category to include something that's kind of slightly different as opposed to just accepting and creating a third, character, uh, third category that is absolutely respected, absolutely has rights, etc. I just don't get why it's not that simple. Frank, it, it, what it's I'm not missing? that simple because uh, the advocates of transgenderism insist on imposing their identity on other people. So if you want to see yourself as a woman, a trans woman, then for you it's absolutely vital that you share your toilet and various other facilities with, with real women, you know, women without penises. And I think for a lot of people, that's a difficult thing to accept. But what from did you do to say women without penises? But there are no... <laughs> Biological women. <laughs> you know, w w women like you and Nabila, basically. And, and as, as far as they're concerned, there's no difference between them. <laughs> <laughs> there's no, there's no difference. <laughs> Nigel, <laughs> Nigel messaged in a, a minute ago, by the way, saying that I was going red. I will be going red in a minute, Nigel. It won't even be a reflection off my red dress, I can tell you. Daniel, well, I help have, us out here. I've only dipped my toe publicly in this debate, but I'm <laughs> astonished and gratified that I've started to receive emails from women throughout the country and cards uh, sent to me saying thank you. Thank you for speaking up for the rights of women. What have you to said that's generated a thank women. you card? I've just, I, I haven't even been very aggressive about this, but on your show previously, I just said women deserve their own space. That's all. They would be, and you got a thank you card space. for that? 
Oh, I speak thank so you. much sense uh, oh, every night you, on the show. Michelle. I've never got a thank Michelle, you card. I get, I get, I've, got, I've had so many thank you cards and emails from women up and down the country saying just thank you very much for standing up for the right of women to be women. And, and I think we've really got to understand that the whole basis, I mean, Liverpool, what did I get this morning? Liverpool feminists did a, a tweet this morning, I can't find it now, saying, I think they were called Liverpool feminists, saying, well done, you know, shout out for Daniel, at Daniel M.G. Moylan for standing up for women. And, and it's very gratifying. Um, but it also, I think, illustrates the fact that this whole debate has moved into a space where um, an awful lot of people in the country, especially women, feel very, very uncomfortable about where things are going. Mm. And that's why I think the government is absolutely right mm -hmm. to, to, to put a halt on this bill, or at least on the parts of it that relate to um, the trans conversion thing. Because you're, we're heading off in a direction where the rest of the country is not following us. Mm. And it's not going to be imposed from the top, whatever Stonewall thinks. People are not going to accept the Stonewall outcome just as the result of imposition. If there is a case for the Stonewall, um, for what Stonewall wants, they're going to have to make that case through persuasion, through advocacy, through examples, through living with things over time if they're going to carry this country with them. But they're already they're imposing this in universities. But they're trying to, but they're schools. doing it top-down imposition. That's and they will already not, happening. It many, will many not be accepted. I know they are. And it will not be accepted. There will be a, a huge kickback against it. If they want to make their case, they, they want to take people with them, they have to persuade them. I think there's they haven't a, done a lot that. of people, as you said, I think, uh, Michelle, it boils down to common sense. A lot of people are all for individual liberties without state interference unless it encroaches on other people's lives. And that's when the legislature has a very important role to play. Well, we don't, we don't to have, keep everybody happy and comfortable. We don't have the right to have common sense here because we've got all these new experts who basically claim that they understand the issue much better than you and I do. And they're given an, you know, a disproportionate amount of time to influence the way these things are, are, are managed. And the very fact that we need to have a law that basically says that, that, that common sense should prevail is itself an indication of how far things have gone. Because you would imagine that the very fact that women want to have their own toilets for themselves should not be a controversial issue. That doesn't need to be adjudicated. It doesn't need to have some experts ruling on it. It should be just common sense, but we've gone beyond that. And I think for that reason, it's very, very important that the transgenderist ideology is, 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 is essentially fought because if it kind of prevails, it's going to have such a negative corrosive impact on young people who are already subjected but to I, it. But I think that you, p people need to be braver in speaking out about this issue because when this uh, issue, I know because I do the show and you know, if, if, this, if the trans topic is ever a, a discussion point, I will get people that say, oh, God, I'm really not comfortable with this topic. And it's just the whole concept mm -hmm. is making people feel uncomfortable. And I think that actually if people uh, were speaking out more, I don't really think we'd be in the situation that and we're in. And it's not an issue anymore. And that's why when it becomes a, a real problem as far as society is concerned or a real issue, to put it in more, um, uh, let's, let's say, neutral terms, then that's when the legislator becomes really important in stepping in and sorting it out. Effectively. I don't think you can sort this out yeah, when you have cultural but through, through law. I really don't think no. you can sort it out through law. You can make a decision um, and you can draw lines through laws, but sorting it out means getting people to come with you. 
And, and at the moment, there's, in there's terms of liberty, no attempt the line to get people some to people's come freedoms and effectively. Yeah, I think you're. I think I think you're right. I'm going to uh, go to a break in a second, but I think you're absolutely right. I do feel. I feel personally like I'm getting smacked over the head with this kind of yeah. book of new terminology, and I have to accept this new terminology and use it, and or else I need to think this, or else. What do you think? Get in touch with me, GBviews at gbnews.uk. Let me know where you are, by the way, where you're watching and listening. I'm fascinated where you all are. Uh, I'll be back in a couple of minutes. I want to talk to you when I do about uh, migrants because apparently Boris Johnson is going to announce some kind of policy which would see um, uh, people now being processed offshore in places like Rwanda. What do you think to that? I'll see you in a couple of minutes. Coming up on Dan Wooten tonight, should the propaganda of the Ukraine war be a reminder to the West that free speech is worth fighting for? Top columnist Mick Hume debates. GB News stars Nigel Farage and Darren Grimes are let loose on the topics that matter most to you. And I'll break down the headlines of the day and the newspaper front pages with my superstar panel. The broadcaster and loose women star Carol McGiffin conservative voice Calvin Robinson and making her debut the economic commentator Miata Fanbula. That's Dan Wharton tonight Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubery. Keeping me company tonight, Daniel Moylan, a former advisor to Boris Johnson and now a Tory life peer in the House of Lords. Frank Peretti, an author and academic, and Nabila Ramdani, journalist and broadcaster. Now, it's been reported that Boris Johnson is planning to announce plans to send migrants to Rwanda to be processed. The Prime Minister is believed to be preparing to unveil said proposals. Let's get to the point of it. What do you think to this, Frank? Well, I don't know who dreamt this one up. But uh, there are two uh, possible problems with this. The first problem is that the Home Office has got a very poor track record in being able to deliver on its promises. Uh, look at the way it's handled the migrants coming over from Calais. Its inability to control migration in any shape or form doesn't give me very much confidence that they will even, even find Rwanda on the map, never mind organize uh, transportation there. That's the first problem. It's, got very, it's a very complicated operation beyond the can of, of the Home Office. The second problem is that, for me, it's a way of ev evading responsibility for managing migra migration. Given the fact that they haven't been able to manage migration coming in from France in the last few years, uh, it's a way of almost kind of outsourcing the problem somewhere else. And the question is, <clears throat> what's going to happen with the migrants in Rwanda? Because unless there's some kind of policy an effective policy, the migrants are going to come back to, to Britain in the end because there's going to be no other way of managing the whole, whole affairs. And I think what they're doing is they're trying to copy what Australia has done, mm. whereby they've taken their, the migrants into an island, you know, sort of fairly, you know, kind of far away from Australia, but still within uh, a manageable distance and hoping that they could repeat that kind of uh, orientation. I think Australia has succeeded because their policy is much clearer and much more robust. I think at the moment, what Britain needs to do is to ask the question, are we going to manage uh, the, the migration issue effectively? And if you're going to do that, you know, what are the steps that need to be taken rather than have a fantasy that Rwanda is going to solve our problem? Abila? Well, I think the emphasis at the moment is rightly on um, refugees from Ukraine, and the government is doing as much as it can to, to assist them. 
But we must not forget that this is a conservative government that has pledged to cut out uh, on, on immigration. And one way it can achieve that is to make ways for uh, those claiming asylum in Britain as difficult as, as possible, including those would-be uh, immigrants uh, thousands of miles away uh, for what he calls processing. Now, Rwanda is some 6,000 miles away from the UK, and it's just a kind of place where uh, the Home Secretary, I would say, Priti Patel, uh, would like to dump migrants while decisions are being made about their futures. I mean, you only have to listen to the government spokesman who confirmed that it wants to work with international partners to fix our broken asylum system. Now, this is just a kind of sinister jargon you would expect from uh, Patel's department. I mean, you have already have critics saying that her proposed immigration reforms are barbarics, and it has to be said that the optics are not very good uh, uh, and pretty unpleasant, I would say. Mm -hmm. And a lot of would-be asylum seekers come from troubled countries, such as Rwanda, and, and, and here the government literally wants to send them back to, to Africa. Um, Daniel, at the risk of sounding like an awful human being, which I hope that I don't when I'm about to say what I do, but you know, absolutely, if someone is in war zones, etc., they need to be uh, helped, support and encouraged. But there'll be people watching this, and I know they'll be yelling at their screens. Uh, I'll give you some numbers. Nearly 30,000 people crossed the channel last year alone. That number is expected to double in 2022. We currently spend, and this figure blows my brain, by the way, nearly £5 million a day on hotels uh, for people at this moment in time. So we have to do something different. And this is the bit that I think people think I'm not a nice person, but I actually think that you should be trying to deter people from sitting there and thinking, right, I know what I'm going to do to advance my economics, etc. I'm going to go to the UK. Am I being mean? Well, I don't know. I mean, I am a huge supporter of this government and I admire the many fertile ideas that come from Pretty Patel's brain, and she has been a great Home Secretary, but this one is brave. There's no doubt about that. This is a very brave policy, um, especially um, when um, I've got a better idea, actually. Which oh, I, oh well, I've got a much for better a tell, idea. For a tell. But I think it's, you do a deal with France whereby everyone, every single person who pays out their life savings and takes the risk of crossing the Channel is immediately returned to France, and in exchange, we will take two out of the camps. And I think that would, that would deter an awful lot of people from taking that risk if they knew they were going straight back to France. But we would still take, we would take two genuine refugees forget, out, of, out of Calais, out of Calais in exchange. But we've given France and, millions and millions and, and millions. And, and, and that's another point. I, 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 I know it's very easy to knock the Home Office and the Border Force and say they're absolutely useless and they couldn't find that they couldn't put the tail on the donkey and find Rwanda on the map. I know that. But the reason people are crossing in boats is precisely because, working with France, we were so successful at stopping people from getting onto trains and lorries. And all those fences and all those defences that have been put up at the port of Calais to stop people, that's why they're coming in the boat. So we can do something right. And the boats are actually the product of, are the result of a successful policy. What we haven't found yet is a successful policy for dealing with the boats. And I don't think that's going to be a physical policy. We're not going to be putting fences up along the coast. But I do think you could do something that actually made people think twice about paying out their own money and taking their lives in their hands in order to cross if they knew that the beneficiaries of that were going to be two people they'd never even heard of. But well, why successful policies? I mean, you look at the last 20 years, and every single year, 
far more migrants come into this country than, uh, than is, is expected. And time and time again, governments say, oh, we, we, migration is under control. And a year later, we discovered that actually the numbers that came in the year before are, are, are far greater than was reported previously. So the way that I look at it, there's been a, a, an incompetent approach for you know, many, 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 many years now. And in a sense, we have to have a major rethink of how do you, can we even stop migration? And if you, if you think we can, then we need some very new, bold policies. But we mustn't uh, outsource responsibility for it to Rwanda. We must take responsibility well, for we wouldn't it. be, I don't think, I'm not defending Priti Patel's policy, which I do think is brave, interesting, imaginative, and brave. Um, but I don't think she's imagining we'd outsource it to Rwanda. They would go to facilities in that we had constructed, where they would be processed. Now, I know the word processing sounds awful, but that is the term that's used, because they have to go through a process of demonstrating who they are, why they are a genuine refugee, what the well-founded fear of persecution is that they have. That has to be shown. And then there are court processes that have to follow, and so mm. people make appeals. Well, uh, so all that could be done potentially abroad, although I don't think this is going to work. Well, there you go. He doesn't think it's going to work. Do you think it's going to work? Do you think it's something that should even be uh, being considered? Um, lots of you guys have been getting in touch. I've been asking where you all from. Where are you tonight? Uh, Carol, she's in Pluckley, Kent. She says the most haunted village in the UK, is it? Pauline is in Erif in Kent. Uh, you've watched TV News from day one. Good evening to you. Uh, Rodney says, Julie and he are in Spain. Costa del Sol. Keith is just north of Toronto in Canada. Robert in Malta. Jim, uh, you are my favourite. You're in a caravan in Cumbria. I've got to say, I love caravanning, I do. Uh, anyway, good evening uh, to all of you and thank you very much to your, for your company and to my panel as well for their thoughts, their insights and their company. Have yourself a fantastic evening. I'll see you the same time tomorrow night. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time. <laughs>